Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And uh, we come to another provocative text we've been studying with Mark over these last few months, uh, particularly in chapters 8 through 10. My goodness, Jesus keeps bringing it. And today is, again, no different as he hits close to home talking about the thing that everybody loves to talk about, money. Uh, so let, uh, believing that he has spoken uh, through uh, his inspired and inerrant word, would you please stand for the reading of God's words, even Jesus' words, from Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, uh, a man ran up to and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around, and he said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were ex exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we do pray that you speak to us right now, meet us right here, as we go through this very challenging text. And speak to the speaker. He, he, he's weak. He needs you today. Give us the grace to hear, to speak, and most of all, to encounter you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, don't know if you heard, but the Super Bowl is tonight. And uh, as a, if you're a fan, one of the things that we look forward to are those creative commercials that come on every year. Uh, there are new twists and angles that go with selling every product imaginable. <laughs> Perhaps the greatest surprise of last year's set of commercials during the Super Bowl was the barrage of sales pitches around Bitcoin. 
Now, I'm not a finance industry expert like some of you are, but Bitcoin is apparently a kind of currency system that has cr created quite a stir for years. And at the Super Bowl a year ago, a Bitcoin company in particular, FTX, paid some of the biggest stars to promote them as a, as a corporation. Of course, FTX brought in uh, people like Larry David, and in a kind of prophetic metaphor, what was to come for their marriage, Tom Brady and Giselle Bündchen. Um, and and uh, this FTX company, of course, was, uh, has been led by a financial whiz named Sam Bankman-Fried. And as NPR says, Bankman-Fried became a crypto breakout star for Bitcoin, and he's been well-known over these last few years. He's been featured on billboards in major cities. He was on the cover of Forbes and Fortune magazine. Even Congress brought him in to talk about regulations for the industry. He was praised by everyone for his transforming vision and ideas about mixing money-making and uh, uh, philanthropy at the same time. And then, it all came crashing down this fall. In a matter of weeks, FTX went from being the most influential Bitcoin company to bankruptcy. Information about the company's balance sheet came out and it was revealed how unhealthy the, the company was and that led to the proverbial bank run which left the company in tatters. Weeks later, a warrant was put out uh, for the arrest of Bankman Freed, and he was eventually arrested. Misuse of funds was found everywhere in the company, and needless to say, there will be no more, no cryptocurrency commercials in the Super Bowl this year, not one. Now, Bankman Freed's story isn't over, but this is yet another rise and fall story of a bright young financier making it big only to run into reality. And today in Mark 10, we find yet another young financier trying to become a religious breakout star as he meets Christ with some very big questions about himself and about his future. In the process, Jesus shows him and us the reality of an upside-down path to lasting treasure in the kingdom. So, what is the path to lasting riches according to Jesus? And what does that have to do with us today? Well, let's remember where we are in Christ's life. After years of ministering in Galilee to the north, he's headed south to Jerusalem. Three different times in chapters 8 through 10, he said he's headed for the cross with the hope of the resurrection. And along the way, we see Jesus stopped periodically on this trip, and he's asked, in this case, a burning question. Listen for the burning question as we go to verse 17. Listen to what it says. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, remember, Jesus is at the peak of his popularity. Crowds are everywhere. But this man runs up to him as if something was urgent for him. He stops Jesus in this kind of dramatic position of submission, kneels before him. And he asks this big question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Now, in the rest of the text, we find out he is an extremely rich person. We'll come back around to that. He's like the founder of a wildly popular Bitcoin company, if you will. Yet, at the same time, he was a spiritual guy, curious about big issues like eternal investments for himself from God's point of view. And that's good stuff. He's also respected Jesus as he kneels and calls him rabbi. That's good, too. He seems like he's really sincere, right? Well, Jesus' answer to this sincere young man's question is striking. He answers in three responses. First, Jesus pushes back a little bit by focusing on the issue of what goodness is. He, he said, why do you call me good? In other words, he's getting the young man thinking about how you measure goodness in people. Second, Jesus makes it clear no one is good except God alone. Now that's a shocking statement. Coming straight from the mouth of Jesus, who, who we know even in our culture as this guy who taught so much about love. Here he's saying no one is good. Now, of course, Jesus uh, was facing in that culture, as we have in our culture, this assumption that we're all basically good people. In fact, most people in that culture and in ours walk around thinking, I'm a good person. But Jesus, kind of with the Old Testament scriptures backing him up, says this provocative thing that no one does good, no, not one. Now, do people actually do good? Yes. But what Jesus is saying is getting at the standard of, good, of goodness, how we understand goodness. Jesus is, in fact, confronting assumptions about goodness with this man with the reality that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Now, the third way Jesus answers the question to what must I do to inherit eternal life is the same answer that every Jewish rabbi in the first century would have given. They would simply say this, obey the law and avoid sin. Obey the law and avoid sin. In fact, Jesus lays out the second table of the Ten Commandments to kind of illustrate this. Uh, he lists commandments five through nine, and he even adds one, do not defraud, which gets specifically to business dealings with people as an application of thou shalt not steal. It's as if as Jesus goes through each one of these laws, he pulls out a measurement. He says, okay, you want to know what you must do to inherit eternal life? Here's what you do. You do these things in the law that's laid plainly out in the Ten Commandments. And then he says, how you doing? How you measuring up to this? Hmm? Now, the answer that this rich man gives is revealing. He says, look, even though God is alone is good, what Jesus himself has said, yes, I have obeyed these laws since my youth. I have achieved what you said. Now, that is a breathtaking and overconfident response. And it even begs a question. Is the kingdom of God achieved or is it received? Now, the young man is living in the achievement 
mindset with the law. And you got to remember, the law basically says this. Do. Do. You must do. Now, Jesus is going another level, though, when this young man says this. He really wants to confront the reality of what's being talked about here. And so he looks at him with love, not in condemnation. And he says, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor. Come follow me. And he even inserts a promise that you will have treasure in heaven. At this point, all of us hear what Jesus is saying and go, what? especially the young man, and go, wait, what? Sell all you have? Are you serious? What's going on here? What's going on here with this man and with Jesus? Well, what we have here is a wildly affluent moralist. He lives with the assumption that he has achieved much in life, and so he can somehow achieve what God requires to inherit eternal life with God. I mean, he conquered the finance industry. He can conquer the requirements of eternal life according to God's law. Is it any wonder he comes to Jesus with that question, what must I do? In other words, he lives in a kind of achievement religion that assumes he has the ability to please God, all the while keeping score of the things he thinks he does for God. Let me put it this way. He is living on the record of his works righteousness. He's living on the record of his works righteousness. Now, some here might say, well, isn't that Christianity, the do thing? And here's our answer. No. No. Religion throughout the world says do. Christianity says something very different. You ready for this? It says done. Done. The gospel tells us that Christ has done what needed to be done to set the record straight in God's power and grace. Jesus has the record that gets us in with God. That's why he says, follow me. It's an invitation to trust him, that he will do what we cannot do. Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of God is not achieved, but is received. Now, here's the problem. The problem of living by do. And by asking the question, what must I do? And I have to tell you, I've had said this throughout my life, like in marriage and a whole host of things. You know, tell me what to do. You know, how many times have we men said that one? Well, here's the question that goes with that, tell me what to do. When have you ever done enough? And how do you know you're doing the right thing? What makes this worse is that we live in a culture like the rich young ruler lived in that had this kind of functional health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And the assumption was that those who had money must have favor with God, presumably because of their morals. If you're rich, you must be more moral than the rest of us because God is blessing you. Now, what do you think is the backside of that? If you're struggling in life, God must hate you, right? 
That's the downside of that theology. The reality is God causes the rain and riches to fall on the just and the unjust out of his very purposes and kindness. There isn't necessarily a connection between obedience to the law and material wealth. So what is Jesus' response to this young man? Why is he coming at him and challenging him to sell everything? Well, he's going for the thing that really captures the young man's heart, the idol of money, the idol of money. Now let's back up and ask again, what's an idol? An idol is anything that's good and sometimes evil that becomes ultimate for us. Now, money is a gift. Indeed, Scripture teaches money is a good gift from God to be enjoyed and appreciated. But as Paul says, the problem is not money itself. The problem is the love of money, for the love of money is the root of all evil. What's this got to do with us? What's this got to do with this rich young ruler? Well, when Jesus was ticking off the laws of the Ten Commandments, the rich young ruler was probably saying, yeah, I did that. Yeah, yeah, I did that one too. Yeah, I've been keeping that. He was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. The truth is, when, when it comes to God's standard of the law, it is true you must obey the law and avoid sin, but the rest of the law says this, or you will die. That is, you get the opposite of eternal life, you get eternal death. And the further problem is that the standard of the law is too high for us, and we try to manage that. The standard of God, if you're ready for this, is 100% obedience to the law, that we must obey the law in thought, word, and deed, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and we must do it all of our lives, and we must do it with love and a deep affection for God and for other people as we engage them. That's what God requires. Now, let me ask, can any of us here do that? I can't. And I know you think you know you can as well. So what do we tend to do when we're confronted with, I can't live up to that? Well, here's what we'll often do. We'll change the rules. Author Brian Burrell tells a story of an armed robber named Dennis Lee Curtis who was arrested in South Dakota in 1992. Curtis apparently was one of these robbers who had scruples about how he did armed robbery. In his wallet, police found the following rules that he had written for himself. Number one, I will not kill anyone unless I have to. Number two, I will take cash and food stamps, no checks. Number three, I will rob only at night and will not wear a mask. How noble. Number four, I will rob only seven months of the year and number five, I will enjoy robbing from the rich and giving to the poor, a la Robin Hood. Of course, this is kind of silly to some degree, but all of us, 
even the rich young ruler will find ways to rationalize and moralize things in our lives so we can have a better record in our own eyes. That's what the rich young ruler was doing in this text. And what he didn't see was that there was another law at work that Jesus goes right to in his response to him. And, and it's this. He was talking about the last six commandments as Jesus, five commandments of the last six. But Jesus goes right to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. When he says, give up everything and follow me, he is getting at, you shall have no other gods before me. Let me state that positively. You shall have me alone as your God. So when Jesus confronts the rich young ruler with selling everything, he's saying, you shall have me alone even above your money. Follow me. Or as Jesus said even a, a chapter or so before, deny yourself pick up your cross, and follow me. Jesus is breaking down this young, rich financier in front of everyone. And that begs a question, what hope does he or do we have when it becomes clear we don't live up to the law, even and especially the first law? Well, here's where the gospel comes in. If you measure yourself with the law of God, you will come to an end of yourself and you will lose hope. So you have a choice. You can either rely on your own record before God or you can rely on another one's record. Jesus Christ is the only one in history who loved the Lord as God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. He's the only one who picked up his cross, denied himself, picked up his cross, and followed God to the uttermost, even to the cross, so that we could be forgiven of sin. Jesus is the one, as 2 Corinthians says, who became poor that we might become rich. All we have to do is make Christ the focus of our life and our faith. It's where... Real faith is where you say, Lord, I'm going to stop relying on my flawed record of sin and idolatry, and I'm going to trust in you alone. That's what real faith sounds like. Or as Tim Keller says, when you're a Christian, when you're in other religions of the world, you repent of evil works, like every religion has that, every moral uh, system does. But you know what makes Christianity different? Is we not only repent of evil we repent of the good things we've done and relying on them, the perceived good works we have before God. So Jesus confronts the rich young man about his sense of goodness and spiritual achievement, and he presses him about, uh, about to follow him and trust in him alone. But sadly, in the text, the man turns away and leaves. And commentators say he actually left with a kind of grief the grief that comes through distress. I mean, he had this great resume. He went to the best universities. He had great success in the business world. He wanted to do more big things for God. And boom, Jesus called him to do something that he didn't see coming. Jesus went straight for his idol. When the moment that he found out he really needed Christ, he turned away from him. And that, that's grief. 
Now, the disciples didn't see this coming either. Uh, in the next few verses, Jesus shocks them by saying how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God as a rich person. And he steps it up by repeating it and, and then saying it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And i got to say real quick, there is a common metaphor that's taught in some churches that there is some kind of gate in Jerusalem that's called the needle that is not true. Jesus is basically saying the largest animal in their region couldn't make it through the smallest known hole. And the disciples were exasperated by this. They aspired to riches as a reward for good behavior. They were hoping Jesus would take them to Jerusalem, set up a kingdom, and make them rich. So they asked, well, then who could be saved? After all, they were caught up in the cultural assumption that God must have favor for you when you're rich. Well, what is Jesus saying? Well, here's what Jesus is not saying in the text. Let me make that clear right off the bat. He's not saying that this is a universal application for every Christian. That is, selling all you have and giving to the poor. This is a personal application for the rich young ruler in his particular idol. Jesus is confronting his God, though, and that applies to everybody, including me. And how do you know what a God is in your life? Well, a God, your God is anything that controls you, anything that presses you to do and pull it off yourself. On the other hand, Jesus is saying that everyone who follows him must be willing to humble themselves before Christ and give up the thing you love the most if necessary. I need to note that in some of our social justice debates, Jesus is also not saying something else, that having a lot of wealth is inherently sinful. Nor is he even assuming that making money or having great wealth is oppressive, like Marxism, which casts aspersions on the rich. Scripture teaches that whatever resources the Lord gives us in whatever state of life we have are to be our gifts from God, the good gifts from God from above that are be enjoyed and to be stewarded under his lordship. See, our issue with money in the end is not how much or how little, it's what we do with it in our hearts. And as Tim Keller says, we have a hard time handling money in our hearts and start building idols the moment we start to believe that losing our money means losing ourself. Now, we know this in church planning circles. We look at spiritual demographic areas when we, when we plant churches, and we actually have measurable ways to see how responsive people will be to the gospel. And the spiritual responsiveness to the gospel, these maps have different colored areas. We have red areas, which are very responsive, yellow areas, which are somewhat responsive, and then there are the blue areas which are usually categorized as generally resistant. Guess which area is most resistant to the gospel? It's the most affluent areas. As my friend Mark Upton says, we can empirically verify that it's harder for a rich man to get in the kingdom of God than for one to go through the eye of a needle. What does this mean for us here in South Charlotte? Because, oh my goodness, 
we're among the most affluent here in the area. We really are. What does this mean for us? Well, here's an important question to ask yourself. Not just about money, but everything. What is so important in your life that it controls you? What is it? What is that thing? What is it that constantly pushes you to do? Jesus loves you and me so much that he will utterly challenge that idol. And he will call us to repentance, to follow anew with him. Furthermore, Jesus himself gives us the gospel in this text. Nothing is impossible with God. God's grace extends to all kinds of people, rescuing them from the dark center in the rough part of town to the CEO who's at the end of himself, even though he's on top. Indeed, we have evidence that in the early church, a number of new believers among the Jews and Gentiles were actually very affluent people. You see, the key with living in an affluent environment is giving up our reliance on our record of good things and remembering that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. An exercise I do periodically I don't mean to scare you or anything, all right? Hang with me. Is once in a while, I'll go through a season like, what if I didn't have ministry life anymore? A thing I really love to do and can be an idol for me. What if I didn't have that? Would I be okay with Jesus? Would I be, feel, still feel the sense of life and purpose that comes from just being in relationship with Jesus? That's an important exercise I have to do periodically. And you need to do the same with that thing that controls you in your life. So, what hope do we have in this? Well, Jesus tells us in the text when he says this amazing thing, he talks about the promise of a treasure in heaven coming. And he's offering hope here. Hope that we not only will get a treasure one day, but that we'll get God himself. You want to know what real following Jesus and spiritual life is, it's where you learn more and more this side of eternity how it is to just have Christ at some moments, and that's all you can hang on to. The more you embrace that, the more you're preparing for heaven because that is what you'll see every day and experience every day in the very presence of God. Jesus affirms this hope in the last four verses of our text. The disciples are listening to all this, and Peter pipes up with an honest assessment of what they have done in verse 28 of our text. And he, said, he began to say, see, we've left everything and followed you. Back in verse 21, Jesus promised the rich young ruler he could give up everything with hope because he would have a treasure in heaven. Jesus is reaffirming that right here again when he tells Peter and assures the apostles and dis disciples that the sacrifices they make for him and for the gospel in this world, even financial ones, will have great reward. And the interesting thing is that he's promising that the losses we experience always will be followed by far greater gains. You see, if you leave something even good for Christ's sake and for the gospel's sake, 
Jesus will reward you with far greater things in this life. Did you notice that? As well as ultimately in the next, in the eternal kingdom of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I can speak from experience about this. I mean, you guys should know this about me. I came from a struggling and a broken family relationally, just a lot of relational stuff. And as a teenager, add to that, I, I struggle with my brokenness and sin. And along about the age of 15, I came to Christ, and I even came into the church starving for salvation, for purpose, for relational depth, for a sense of belonging. I found that all of the tangible things that God gives you in the Spirit uh, show up actually in the church in a real way. And I've realized more and more the older I get in Christ how while my father was a broken man who couldn't give to me and invest in me like I really needed or wanted as a kid, God put a load of men in my life through the church over decades who became my spiritual fathers and who invested in me. And I found family in church as a result of that. And the result is Jesus not only revealed that I could have fathers this side of eternity, but he gave me little tastes of what his fatherhood is actually like in the healing relationship that goes with him. Jesus loved me, and he loved me through the church, and he'll do the same for you when you give up something for him. All the best experiences of church are meant to be a taste of heaven for you and for me, and one day... We're going to all have riches in heaven that we cannot count. And don't forget, in our world, and this is true everywhere, this side of eternity in a broken world, there is always a ceiling to blessings. A ceiling, like you keep hitting a, a ceiling in the process. But when you get to heaven, the rewards and experience of Christ is merely the floor. You can only go up. That's the hope we have as Christians. You get to be with God himself and all the saints seeing Christ and interacting with him on a daily basis. That alone is glorious and amazing riches, and it only gets better from there. So let me ask you, what riches are you looking for today? What controls you so that you find yourself on the treadmill of performance and spiritual achievement like the rich young ruler? Are you finding your identity in the stuff of this world? Or are you willing to follow Jesus and find very different riches, lasting riches that can never be taken away? Here's all I have to say today. There is an eternal way. Jesus says, follow me. Let's pray. Lord, we have just talked about a very challenging thing for all of us here when we talk about money. And uh, when we talk about our heart rhythms and what we do with the law. And Lord, we see our need. We feel it. But thank you, Jesus, that you have a record that covers us. Thank you, Jesus, that you call us to a, a far greater life where we get tastes of it this side of eternity. And we'll get it in all fullness when we're with you in heaven and new heavens and a new earth. I pray for everyone here today that wherever they are with you, they wouldn't be bound by the things that control us of this world and in this world, 
but that we look to you and we would let you love us and minister to us and lead us to an eternal way. Help us to follow you in Christ's name. Amen.